Um, I hope that each of you will take comfort in knowing that this is not the passage I set out to teach on. Um, just kind of grab that in. We're just going to set it up here. Um, the big reveal will be later. I don't want you to be distracted as I would be. That should stay, right? Um, this is not the passage that I set out to teach on. I'm going to try not to let you hear every breath that I take today. Um, I actually set out to teach 1 Peter 6 through 9. But if you look at the first part of verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice. So I had to figure out what this was, um, which brought me to to 3 through 5. Um, and so 3 through 5... You don't have to look there just yet, but it's really juicy. There's a lot going on there. And so I'm going to help us work through 3 through 5 and look at the truths of what are there. And then we're going to look at what we do with those truths. As we focus on those truths, what should we then, how does that affect us every day, okay? Um, so we're looking at First Peter it's commonly accepted that First Peter was written by, written by Peter because it says Peter in the very first part of the book that he wrote it. So um, it's also commonly accepted that Peter wrote this while he was in Rome. Um, and it's also accepted that Peter wrote this just a few years, if not maybe just one year before the persecution of Christians under Nero, um, who was a pretty bad guy who blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome and because of that set out and um, all kingdom-wide there was persecution of all Christians. And so this letter is really written to believers in uh, a certain area of modern-day Turkey to encourage them through their persecution to endure their persecution um, and endure the sufferings that they were going to go through. Um, and so he starts off the very beginning of the letter um, with, or the very first verse that we'll look at. Um, it's just an overflow of Peter's heart in light of everything that he's going to teach. Um, but before we get into First Peter, I want to kind of set the context of that audience that Peter was teaching to. Um, like I said, these are Christians who were um, already enduring persecution, but who were really about to endure severe persecution um, for their faith. And so, um, you know, they've suffered uh, torture, uh, loss of homes, loss of jobs, uh, loss of family members. Um, some of them even uh, will eventually lose their lives. And so you can see how because of those um, that impact on their lives and maybe that temptation around them of being persecuted, that that would be a hindrance to them in um, sharing their faith and in sharing what God had, had done in their lives already. And so I want us to see as we go through this that maybe we, well, not maybe, we haven't been persecuted in the same way of physical persecution, but where we live today we, in a sense, suffer from comfort persecution or uh, having everything that we want and having easiness around us everywhere we go. Um, it's easy to have shallow relationships with people just for the sake of everybody being comfortable and everybody, you know, living together in harmony, really. And so it's tempting for us at times in the same way as those believers to keep from sharing our faith. From, to keep from having uh, rejection of the gospel in our own lives or to keep from that discomfort that comes when you share your faith or you share the truths of what God has done in your life. So I hope that as we go through this, identify yourself with these believers that in the same way that they were tempted not to share their faith because of physical persecution, we too are tempted not to share our faith for the, the sake of being comfortable. Um, so we'll work through that. We'll work through each one of the truths, keeping that in mind as we're going through these truths of what God has done. Um, I don't get up here every 
Sunday, so I'm going to have to work through some notes every once in a while. Um, I'm sure you understand. Let's go ahead and go to the text, First Peter chapter 1, 3 through 5. Um, so right after the introduction, here we are, verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So just as you kind of sit and and look at all that's in there. There are a lot of rich truths about what God has done for us as believers. Um, and like I said, our goal today is to look at these different truths and to break down these passages to see that through God's mercy, we now have a purpose as believers. In light of what God has done through his great mercy, we have a purpose as believers. All right, so verse 3 um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is right after the introduction. And before Peter goes into the rich doctrinal truths of what God has done, his heart is to the point of overflowing in worship and praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, before he gets into to anything serious with these believers, he knows what he's about to share with them. And because of that, in light of that, He's to the point of overflowing in, in praise and worship of God and of what he's done. And I think it's important for us, even though we haven't looked at the truths yet, that before we learn these truths and look at these, and then even afterwards, even more so, that we too can rejoice and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done, because of his past faithfulness to us, because of all the promises that he's given us through his word, and because of the power of the gospel in each of our own lives that we can see today. So it's a very emotional beginning to a lot of rich truth that Peter has for us. And so we worship through song, but we worship through scripture too. And today we're going to worship through looking at these truths and realizing that this has happened to me as a believer. And because of that, I now have a purpose. Okay. Um, so what are the truths and the realizations that would bring Peter's heart to overflowing and saying, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, your first blank there, God has shown his great mercy by giving us a purpose. Okay. I'm going to do the big reveal. Okay. Maybe there won't be a loud crash and maybe this sheet won't have erased half of what I've written. Um, this isn't a podcast-friendly sermon, obviously, because we have a visual aid, and uh, there's no vision when it comes to podcasts. So if you're listening to this by podcast, ask your friend to show you the picture that he took of it. <laughs> Friends, take a picture of it, okay? So this is somewhat of a reveal. Try not to look through the, the paper to see the end. We can tell who uh, used to peek at their Christmas presents here, trying to look through the paper. So we basically just have the passage. And according to his great mercy, it's just an umbrella over everything that we're going to look at today. All of the truths that we're focusing on today are in light of God's great mercy. Okay? It, it starts off with according to his great mercy, comma, and then Paul just, uh, Peter just delivers these truths. Okay. So let's look at the word mercy. Um, what does it mean? The Greek word, and I will try to say these. And if you've taken Greek in here, you can shout out what it really is pronunciated as Elios. Um, it means active compassion. So not just the word compassion, but a, an active compassion towards somebody or a natural liking or sympathy towards someone, okay? So God saw us in our sin. He saw us in our despair. And he acted on us 
by showing us compassion and sympathy. Okay? He didn't see us in, in our sin and in our despair and sit back and say, what's fair is fair, and it's over. But he acted with compassion and sympathy towards us in our sin. Okay? Now let's think about it in light of the believers that Peter's teaching to and us today. Peter's still teaching to us today. Okay? God has acted in mercy towards us. So in light of that, despite what the world offers around me and the seductiveness of the world, I have a God who's acted on my life and seen me in my sin and in my despair and who has shown me great compassion. So what can the world offer me that even comes close to that? Or what can physical persecution that was threatening these believers, what kind of um, impact can that have in light of a God who has seen me in my despair and in my sin and who has shown me mercy? But not just mercy, great mercy. Great meaning abundant, abundant, plentiful, um, or plenteous. Another funny word just means plentiful, but plenteous. Kind of like superfluous from the last time I talked. That just means a bunch too, right? Okay. Um, where else do we see God's mercy? There, I've got some passages that you can look at in the notes as we're working through this. Um, I may not read all of them, but just in an effort to keep you to where you can turn to it if you'd like to really quick. Um, that's why the passages are up underneath the different sections. But where else do we see God's mercy? Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So God is rich in mercy. Titus chapter 3, 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us and righteousness, but according to his own mercy. All right? So God is, has great mercy towards us. It's something that we see in, uh, throughout Scripture, that God is a God of mercy. Okay? So next we have... He has caused us to be born again. All right, it's kind of in the center here, okay? Before we get to that, I'm going to reveal a section here. This is me when I was born in 1984. Um, and I'm kind of, I'm laying on the ground here, kind of in a sense, to communicate spiritually. I'm dead. Physically, I'm alive. Um, and we'll kind of see later that this would be the um, being born through water that Jesus refers to. Um, so physically I'm born in 1984 and then he caused me to be born again. This is red me here in 2002. Okay. Don't look at this part here. This is cheating right here. Probably won't use a visual aid next time. Uh, so that's me in 2002. He caused me to be born again. So real quick, let's think about the believers who are reading this letter from Peter and ourselves. Okay? They're experiencing physical persecution. We have the seductiveness of the world that provides us almost comfort persecution. You know, be like us. Be in peace. Everything's groovy. You know, don't cause a distraction. Don't tell me that, I, that I'm a sinner, you know, that I need God. Okay? So they're being pressured not to share their faith. We are pressured not to share our faith. But in light of that, God acted in our lives. He caused us to be born again by his great mercy. Okay, so let's look, let's think about the word born again here. There are other passages in scripture that would use the phrase rebirth or new life or new creation. So this newness, this rebirthing. Um, it's, it's common throughout scripture. Um, we see Jesus use the phrase born again in John three, one through five. 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, <clears throat> I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, which is me over here, and the Spirit, which is me over here, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is using the same born-again phrase, this rebirth, new creation, new life that's happening, okay? So what about this word, caused? How, where, where, what can we say? How can we say that God has caused us to be born again? We've been born again. A lot of times there's confusion with, you know, I did, I accepted Christ and uh, I asked Jesus into my heart. There's, these sentences begin with, I did this. But apparently, according to Scripture, He has caused me to be born again. All right? Um, stay, if you're turning, which you might not be, but go stay in John. Um, we're going to see what it means that he caused us to be born again. John chapter 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God who, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we receive this rebirth, this new life, this new creation as an act of God, not as an act of blood or flesh or the will of man, but of God. So this process right here is typically referred to as regeneration. Like you may have heard of that word before. It's like a doctrinal word, regeneration. This, and the definition here is it's a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life. Okay, so that's this act of regeneration here is his causing us to be born again. In the same way that a baby can't cause itself to be born, a baby has nothing to do with it being born into this world. There's no act of the baby to be born. And in the same way that a, someone who's died can't make themselves be alive, there's no ability within them to make themselves be alive, we can't cause ourselves to be born. It's all, God's, it's all under God's umbrella of His great mercy, okay, so that He gets all the credit for it. We can see this as well in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What's neat is that if you look in Ezekiel 36, 26, 26 through 27, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel is even talking about this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So even in the Old Testament, we have Ezekiel who is saying, this is what God will do in you. This causing, his acting upon us through his great mercy. Okay? Um, so again, let's think about how encouraging it is to these believers who are hearing this and to us today. That God in his great mercy has seen us in our sin and in our despair and has acted upon us, not because of righteousness done by us, not because of will of the flesh or the will of man, but because of his great mercy, okay? Continuing to, to, to look at these truths so that at the end we can see, what do we do with this, okay? Um, 
So God has shown his great mercy by giving us new life. I should have probably started off with that. It's okay. I don't do this every day, right? So God has shown his great mercy by giving us new life. Next, God has shown his great mercy by giving us a living hope. All right, we'll look again at verse 3. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this is my best interpretation of stick man Jesus. Okay? I realize he has a mane. Okay? My family thought that was pretty funny. So, this is three days. One, two, three. Right? And then we've got Jesus has conquered death. He's in his resurrected body. He's been glorified. There he is, no longer in the grave. He's alive, okay? Now think about the perspective of the audience, the, the, the hearers in uh, Asia Minor that Peter was, was writing to. These folks are being physically persecuted, tortured by the Romans. They're, they're losing their, their jobs, their families, um, and they're losing their lives. Now think about us. Well, they've been tempted not to share their faith in light of that, right? Think about us. You know, we don't we don't experience physical persecution, but we're we're being pressured to live in peace with everybody. Everything's fine. Everything's going to be okay. Why why bring your religion on me? Okay. Why tell me that I need a savior? Okay. And so it's like, in the same way, we're being tempted. You know, don't share your faith. Don't 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 disrupt. You know, this this easygoing life that we have okay but in light of that we now have a savior who is living who has conquered death and so we no longer need to fear losing our lives those believers no longer need to fear losing their lives jesus has redefined redefined the value of life here on earth we're so focused on life here on earth right now and the comforts of it and the easiness of it and all the things that we can surround our, ourselves with. And Jesus says, this life isn't valuable. This, this experience that you have through this time here on earth isn't about you. Okay? And so... I have in my notes, Peter is showing us that Christ has redefined the values of, of our lives. Peter says, focus on the solid joy of Christ's resurrection from the dead. We have a living hope because Jesus is our living Lord and Savior. This reminds me of the song, Because He Lives, We Can Face Tomorrow. If He doesn't live, what hope do we have? We're the most to be pitied of everybody if Jesus isn't alive. But because He lives, we have a living hope. Um, Romans eight twenty-two through 25 talks about this as well. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Okay, so because Jesus has been raised from the dead, defeated death, in this hope we have been saved because of the redemption of our own bodies one day. This process in redemption, you know, we talked about regeneration here. This is referred to as glorification, our, our eventual glorification to be like Jesus. And I'll just go ahead and reveal this section. This is Jesus um, coming back. And um, regardless of your eschatology, Jesus will come back. Um, and so when he does... Scripture is clear that we will appear with him. Colossians 3, we will appear with him and be like him. Okay, so this is my blue glorified body like Jesus is a blue glorified body. I just don't have the main. Um, and so glorification is the final step in redemption. When Christ returns and raises the bodies of all the saints, both dead and alive, and reunites their souls with their new glorified bodies. Okay? So even if you've passed away, it's okay. It's okay, believers, 
who are being persecuted. Even if you pass away, it's okay. Okay, redefining the value of life is what Christ has done. Um, we see glorification as well in First Corinthians fifteen fifty one through fifty two. A lot of fifty fifty. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall, not, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What an unshakable hope for all of us as believers. That because Christ has been raised from the dead, that we too will be raised to be like him one day when he returns. So everything in this world can't come close to the hope that comes because Jesus has been raised from the dead. All the comforts of this world and all the, the things that we can surround ourselves with to say, man, this is the best life has to offer is no longer the best. Okay? We're no longer tempted to keep our faith held in because we want to stay comfortable and we want to stay friends with everybody. It's like David Platt said, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share the gospel with them? So because of this living hope, our perspectives have been changed. The perspectives of those believers have been changed. By his, God has shown his great mercy by giving us new life, by giving us a living hope. And then next, God has shown his great mercy by giving us a new inheritance. Verse 4 says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, Kept in heaven for you. All right, let's think about what an inheritance is. Um, definition of an inheritance is um, like money or property or a title that you would receive as an heir of the previous holder. So something that would be passed down. You know, that's kind of our understanding of what an inheritance is that you would... You know, after an uncle passed away or, you know, a grandmother or, you know... Uh, a parent that, you know, whatever their possessions were, they would be passed down to you and you would receive them. Um, another understanding of an inheritance would be like a quality or a trait, some type of characteristic that your parents or your uncles had. You know, like Sally Sue has red hair because Aunt, Aunt Susie Lee had red hair. You know, like it's been passed down. She inherited that from... You know, her great uncle, Willie. Um, I like Duck Dynasty, right? Um, so that's kind of our understanding of an inheritance, okay? Now, that kind of gets mixed up when it comes to our inheritance as believers, okay? As the believers who are being physically persecuted that Peter's writing to, they don't really have any more inheritance. They're losing their jobs and their homes and they're losing their family members and their lives. And so any idea of an inheritance being passed down is being taken away. It's, it's not theirs anymore. It's being ripped away from them. And in the same way, we as believers now are our idea of an inheritance is something that we want to build up and we we want it to be big and we want it to be great so that we can pass it down to you know to our children and 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 to our other relatives so that they can enjoy life this inheritance of of really what the world values we want to to make it rich you know in some way but peter is showing us that our idea of an inheritance should be dramatically changed um, my idea initially as a believer and probably as a lot of um, believers or those who would call themselves believers of an inheritance is some inordinate 
amount of, I don't know if I've ever used the word inordinate, inordinate. obviously I can't say it, um, but this plenteous amount of riches in heaven that will just sit there and count for all eternity, right? God's prepared my little mansion. We all want to say it's a mansion, you know, or, you know, you got like a fountain in your mansion and, and there's like all this expensive stuff and all these precious metals and everything. But if the streets are paved with gold, precious metals aren't precious anymore, right? Like that's what the road's made out of. So obviously there's some type of miscommunication with this inheritance that we're going to receive. So let's look in the scripture. Where else do we see inheritance? This is basically how I studied this passage. You know, you look through scripture. It's pretty cool. Um, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. It goes down to verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In Colossians 1 verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. Colossians 3.24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So there you go. That's what it is, right? I mean, we're going to get it. That's what it is. No. What is it? So what is this inheritance? What will we be receiving? There's a lot of receiving going on on our behalf, but what is it that we're receiving? Jesus tells us what it is. He's kind of the ultimate authority on these things. Matthew nineteen twenty nine. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. Our inheritance is eternal life. There's no huge mass of goods because those massive goods aren't good anymore. Our inheritance is our eternal life. Because we are now heirs with Christ, we've been adopted into his family, we receive the inheritance from him. We receive glorification and eternal life with him. All right? That. That is what is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It will last for forever. In Ephesians 5, we kind of see the flip side to this. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So the good news for us is that we have an inheritance as believers and it's eternal life. This isn't it. This isn't home. And there's no need to make it feel like this is it. There's no need to make it feel like this is home. And there's no need to live. There's no need to live with the gospel in our hearts and no need to live with the truths of what God has done in our hearts and and inside of us. We don't have to be tempted to, to be quiet anymore. The temptation doesn't the temptation doesn't outweigh the truths of what God has done for us. Okay? So we have this inheritance, but and it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's also kept in heaven for you. The word kept means to keep unmarried or to keep from escaping. So it's being kind of reserved for us. Um so what it is, is it is Christ. When Christ who is in heaven returns for good, we as believers will receive that inheritance through him, that eternal life. He is, when he comes back from heaven, again, we have different eschatology, eschatological views. But in the end, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, 
we will receive eternal life. Okay? Um, I have in my notes, our inheritance is taken care of, and it is complete, and it is settled, and it is being kept, set aside for us. Okay? So God has shown his great mercy by giving us new life, by giving us a living hope, by giving us a new inheritance. Next, God has shown his great mercy by giving us present security. So we started off, we were looking at um, the beginning as, for me as a believer. Regeneration is what, was what we referred to as this. And then we said, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is my living hope now. And then eventually my inheritance that I'll receive when Christ returns. But there's something going on in between here. Am I just left to kind of go through my faith on my own? Or, that's really funny looking. Am I just left to kind of go through my faith on my own until eventually Christ returns? Maybe I pass away. Maybe Christ, Lord willing, comes while I'm still alive. But from this point to this point, God is still active. And God is still working. And God is still faithful and still merciful. Okay? Before you get too entranced by the barbed wire, okay? That's what that is. It's not like a, an Arby's French fry. That's the barbed wire. Let's think again about the perspective of the believers that Peter's writing to. Okay? These guys, physical persecution at the hands of the Romans. Okay? They're being tortured. They're losing their jobs because of their faith. They're losing their, their homes because of their faith, their families, and even their lives. And so they're being tempted to not share their faith and not share the richness of these truths at the sake of what they'll lose. And in the same way, we today, because of the, the, the comfort persecution of this seductive world, are being tempted to keep to ourselves and to have shallow relationships with people and to build up a treasure for ourselves here on earth and to keep quiet about our faith so that we don't infringe on anybody or so that we don't create a uh, an uncomfortable relationship or experience rejection from them okay in light of of those things that are happening it says who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time so let's let's break it down This process, before we kind of get deep down into it, is referred to as the perseverance of the saints, or the word persevere, okay? And so that's kind of what's happening right here. And there's, this is, a, this is probably the toughest part of what I'm going to teach, so I want you to kind of follow with me. Uh, not that you haven't been already. But the definition that goes along with perseverance is that all those who are truly born again are kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. But then there's a second part to the definition. Only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. All right, so the first part of it, it was kept by God's power. Those people will persevere until the end. The second part was only those who persevere were truly born again, okay? For our sake, the emphasis this morning is clearly on God's power, okay? Before we talk about the barbed wire and everything, just to reassure you, I want you to look in John chapter 6, 38 through 40, where we see the same... Um, effect of God's power in our lives. Jesus says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is not this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So those who are given to the Son will not be lost. Then Tyson read earlier, John ten twenty seven through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So there's, if I'm in the Father's hand, there's no snatching. Like, no one's taking me away from the Father's hand, okay? Whoever the Father has given to the Son will not be lost, okay? So there's a guarantee there. There's, there's a, a, an assurance, an extreme comfort to us as believers and to those hearers back then. There's an extreme comfort to them that, that God is still working in your life. And not only is he working, but he's protecting and he is guarding you. He's not just, you know, standing around and, you know, kind of every once in a while kind of redirecting your step or, you know, just kind of, you know, at a distance like, you know, kind of persuading you or, or whatever. Like he is, he's active throughout our lives. He is a God of great mercy. Okay. Um. At the same time that God is doing this, don't forget the second part of our definition. Um, I don't want to at any point offer anybody a false assurance of their salvation that because of something that happened 30 years ago, you know, that they would claim was the point of their regeneration. However, at this point, their life is totally different. I, I wouldn't want to give them a false assurance that you are still a believer because the second part of the definition is if you are born again, you will persevere. So there's God's power acting in our salvation. But at the same time, the truth is if you are born again, you will persevere. Okay. So there's two parts to that. And you know, we, I wouldn't want to communicate any type of false assurance to anyone of their salvation for something that really didn't happen. Okay, um, so if you are born again, then persevere is the way that the second half of that definition works. A better way to put it would be found in the Bible. Um, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So if indeed our original confidence, what happened in the beginning, is still happening, and this is still work, being worked through our lives, okay, that idea of if you are born again, persevere. This is still happening in my life is what Hebrews is saying, okay? All right, now we're going to get into the actual text. Um, the first part, by God's power are being guarded. The word guarded there can mean both kept from escaping or protected from attack. So apparently there's something that we need to be guarded from as believers. And this is where, like, we got to figure this out. I mean, if you're telling me as one of the members of the audience that Peter's writing to that I need to be guarded from... Uh, from something, initially I'm going to think, I need to be guarded from dying. Or I need to be guarded from suffering. Like, these people are trying to hurt me, and I need to be guarded from that, right? Well, in Scripture, Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So death isn't something that I need to be guarded from. As believers, death is... Is great. I mean, not that we would choose to 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 die right now. I mean, obviously we have a purpose, but eventually, when I die, I'm going to be with the Lord, and that is my living hope. That is my 
uh, my comfort in death. That death isn't a bad thing anymore. It's okay. It's a good thing. Um, what about persecution? Second Timothy two three, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So I don't need to be guarded from suffering. I mean, Scripture is clear that suffering will happen as a believer, and and in fact, it prepares you for salvation. It it works in your life as a good thing. Okay, so suffering I don't need to be guarded from. So what's the one thing that can keep us from the promise of salvation? I mean, that's what we need to be guarded from. Whatever it is that can keep me from being, from reaching salvation. And, and it's really the concept of the deception that we've talked about, that Adam's taught on, is being deceived. Okay? The thing that we need to be guarded from is not believing God. Okay? Not having faith, not trusting Christ not trusting in what he has accomplished for us. If we lose that, we're, that's it, we're history. That's what we really need to be guarded from. Everything else is just circumstantial and, you know, and surface level. But my unbelief is what I need God to guard me from, okay? Um, Second Timothy... Actually, I'm just, I'm just going to skip. No, I can't skip. 2 Timothy 1.12. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. So 2 Timothy, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. All right. Um I want to skip down, and I'm going to. There's a good example of this God's guarding our faith, and it happens with Peter himself. Okay? Uh, it happens in the garden, and it's in Luke 22, 61 through 62. It says, no, I'm sorry. It's in Luke 22, 31 through 32. Jesus looks at Peter, and he tells him, of course, he's calling him Simon right here, but Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Okay, so this idea of just kind of pushing you through the sieve and just kind of like draining the life out of you. Okay, testing, like a severe testing. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And then he says, but I have prayed for you. Now, he doesn't say that I've prayed for you that it won't happen. I prayed uh, and, and it's not going to happen, Peter. It's okay. There's, he's not, he's not going to test you. Everything's going to be fine. He doesn't say that. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus doesn't pray that it won't happen. Jesus allows it to happen. And he says, but I've prayed that your faith may not fail. I've prayed that the one thing that would keep you from, from not being a child of God would be protected. That one thing that you needed to be guarded from, unbelief. I've prayed that it would be taken care of. He says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So who is Jesus praying to here? Obviously, he's not praying to Satan, and he's not praying to Peter, that Peter, you know, Peter, you know, get ready. This is going to happen. I pray that your faith won't fail. He's praying to God, the only one who has the power to protect Peter's faith. He says, later on in Luke twenty-two sixty-one through 62, this is after Jesus has been arrested and this is after the rooster has crowed and Peter has denied Christ. He's denied knowing him. He's denied any affiliation with him. It says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. 
how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And what did Peter do? He went out and he wept bitterly. He was broken because he realized what had happened. But it wasn't, it wasn't anything within Peter and his own goodness that realized what had happened. God was protecting and guarding his belief and sustaining his faith through that. To the point to where Peter realized what had happened and he remembered what Jesus had told him, that that would happen, and he was broken over it. So, for us as believers, and for these, this audience as believers, there is extreme comfort again in knowing that God is still active in our lives and working to help guard and protect our faith. The one thing that can keep us from not reaching the inheritance, God is working and protecting and guarding for us and sustaining for us. All right, so I've skipped around and it may have messed me up a little bit, but it's okay. Let's go back to the text because it says not as not only is God's power uh, by God's power are we being guarded through faith, but it's a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So this isn't our a reference to our initial salvation. It's a reference to our end time salvation or um, reaching. Uh, Getting the inheritance, which is the goal in the end, is for us to, to be with Christ for eternity, okay? Um, in my notes, it's clear that the salvation that he's speaking of is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's the final act of salvation, of redemption, of our glorification, and the encouraging thing is that it's already been taken care of. It's ready to be revealed. Okay, there's no last minute to-dos. There's no other, you know, this has got to be taken care of. Like, it's it's ready. And at a moment's notice, it will happen. Um, it, nobody knows when it is. It'll come like a thief in the knife, like a thief in the night. And when it does, we will receive that inheritance that's been promised to us since we've been adopted into God's family, okay? This is kind of my funny thing here. I got in my notes. Um, this may be the understatement of the year, but I'm not sure if any of us have realized it or not, but God is someone we would call a planner. Like he likes to plan things out. Um, I thought it was funny. <laughs> so not only is he thinking ahead, but he is ahead. And Colossians 1.17 tells us that not only is he before all things, but in, in him all things hold together. So he is sustaining all of it. A, a God of great mercy who has shown mercy on us, okay? All right, so we've worked through our timeline here. Um, and so as we've gone through this, I've mentioned how tempting it is for us as believers to be reserved and to keep quiet about what God's done in our hearts. But we've seen today the truth of what God has done, that because he is a God of great mercy, he has done this for us. And it's not because anything, it's not because works of righteousness or because of the will of the flesh or blood or man. It's all because of God. And so in light of these truths, let's look at our application. I want you to turn to that passage. I know you haven't had to do a whole lot of turning today. I've been reading, but I'd really like for you to turn to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Um, it's the same letter, obviously, 1 Peter. And um, Peter says in verse 9, Really, he, he's telling us who we are. Because we have been adopted and now we have an inheritance, this is who we are. He says, but you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what God has done for us, and this is who God has made us. And because he has shown us this rich mercy, Peter says, Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's an action here. There's God's action, and now there's our action. Because of these truths of what God has done, proclaim the excellencies of God. I have in my notes, God has shown his great mercy towards us that we would make that great mercy known to the world. God is revealing who he is through us and through what he has done for us. That is how he is showing the world who he is and that he has that he is a God of great mercy. And we are the mouthpiece for that. And we are the ambassadors for that. He has entrusted this truth to us that we would be faithful to reveal that, who he is, to this world. Instead of being seduced by this world and instead of thinking that this world is it and that this is the best, that we realize that in fact, this is the worst in light of what God has for us and in light of what God is doing and has done for us. God has shown his great mercy to us that we would fulfill our duty as ambassadors of reconciliation, of God, a holy God, bringing sinful man together through his son Christ and, and reconciling us with God through his son the ultimate act of his great mercy on us. That the body of Christ would be strengthened and emboldened with the gospel. That in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods, that we would realize that it's not worth it for me to just keep quiet and have a shallow relationship with these people. But because of God's great mercy on my life, I'm going to pass that great mercy along and share the truth of what God is doing in my life to proclaim those things and to share those things and to not just be focused on the weather and not just be focused on your how was your weekend. But this is how God is proving himself faithful to me in my life. And this is how God is proving himself merciful to me in my life. And, and I'm going to share that with you so that you see who God is. And so that you recognize that he is a God of great mercy. That ultimately his glory would be revealed through his great mercy towards us. That God would reveal his glory and all he is through us. That we would reflect that glory to this world. To this world that just wants us to be enticed by all the, by all the perishable, fading things that it has to offer. Peter's saying, believer, know what God has done for you. Focus on what God has done for you and reflect on it. And then turn and share it with those around you. Share it with your brothers in Christ to strengthen them. Share it with the lost world who needs Christ. But realize what God has done. And don't get lost in the deception of this world. And don't get tossed around. But focus on the truth, the only solid thing that you can focus on amidst all these waves of, of 
worthless things that this world has to offer. Tyson's going to come up and sing this last song, but before he does, I I, I wanted to look at the lyrics of it. Um, It was kind of funny because Tyson said, this is a song I'm going to do at the end, and it almost looks like this guy wrote this song in light of 1 Peter. Um, It's Blessed Assurance. It says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. It's neat how those four lines right there kind of reflect what we've looked at today. That blessed assurance, like that present security that we have, that assurance that we have. And then a foretaste of glory, this living hope that we have through Christ, through his resurrection. Heir of salvation. So we are heirs to inherit eternal life. And then born of his spirit, our new life. Our rebirth, a spiritual rebirth, born of his spirit. It it really is almost like he was looking at these verses when he wrote this song. Um, So Tyson's going to play it. And... um, if you have any questions or anything, I tried to be concise and clear because I'm being um, broken down. Every single word I said today will be broken down and analyzed. And um, and so I just want to make sure I was concise, but that's it. Let's stand together.